I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of the multiple award-winning News Beat podcast. We welcome you to a special bonus episode continuing our coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. You can listen to all of our episodes, including our traditional blend of hard-hitting social justice journalism and original hip-hop, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can also visit us at usnewsbeat.com. Now, the coronavirus continues to ravage much of America, but New York's still the epicenter of the crisis. The nation appears to be passing another grim milestone each day as officials continue to try to contain the spread of the deadly virus. Our last episode focused primarily on New York because of it being the epicenter of the crisis, now with more than 7,000 dead. Now, the state was among the earliest to issue stay-at-home orders for non-essential workers, yet the virus continued its rampage. By comparison, Florida, led by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, waited until April 3rd, nearly two weeks after the Empire State, to issue a similar ban. But back on March 16, the ACLU of Florida wrote to DeSantis and urged preventative measures to protect people being housed inside the state's jails and prisons. Florida has an incarceration rate that surpasses the United States as a whole, and it detains twice the amount of people in its jails being held pre-trial than those with a conviction. On April 5th, two days after people were largely told to stay home, Florida reported its first inmate infections, and on April 8th, recorded its first inmate death in Broward County. To examine how the coronavirus is impacting Florida's incarcerated population, our editors Rashed Mian and Christopher Tawarski spoke with Jacqueline Azis, a staff attorney with the ACLU of Florida. In the second half of the episode, you'll hear from Ann Adelist Estrin, director of the National Resource Center on Children and Families of the Incarcerated at Rutgers University Camden, to help us understand how bans on prison visitation amid the pandemic impacts children and families with loved ones behind bars. Before we start, please consider subscribing to Newsbeat to stay up to date on all things social justice and to hear more of our continuing coverage of the coronavirus and how it's affecting the most marginalized communities. While you're at it, please leave a rating and review and share us with someone you know and love. Now, here's Chris and Rashed. All right. uh, So I want to start with this. So um, Florida, as we all know now, is among uh, the states that delayed a stay-at-home order that it re- just recently started right. um, despite the coronavirus ravaging most of the country. So when did the ACLU of Florida begin calling for proactive steps to be taken inside jails and prisons? And what was the response from law enforcement and officials throughout the state? On March 16th, we joined a lot of Florida-based organizations that advocate for the rights of individuals who are detained and imprisoned in Florida. And we sent a letter to Governor DeSantis asking for him to implement certain prevention and management plans within the Department of Corrections and the Florida Department of Juvenile Justice. So that letter was sent on March 16th. Since then, we've done a few other things. Um, We just sent a letter to the Palm Beach County Sheriff and the Palm Beach County State Attorney yesterday asking for specific requests from them to help mitigate um, the COVID-19 concerns, not only to protect, you know, the community at whole, but specifically those individuals who are in custody of the sheriff and the employees of the sheriff. And by helping those who are in the sheriff's custody and the employees of the sheriffs, that in turn will help the entire community. Right, right. So we're based in New York, which is the epicenter of all this. And one of the most notorious jails in the country is Rikers Island. And that already has an incredibly high infection rate that's even surpassing the city itself, um, despite New York acting much sooner than Florida. So do you know how many people inside jails and prisons in Florida specifically have been affected on average, maybe? The problem is, is that the sheriff's office and the Florida Department of Corrections are not providing us all of the information in terms of how many individuals have actually been tested. So to the extent of how many people have been tested, I don't even know that number because there's no information being put out overall by the sheriffs in Florida or within the Florida Department of Corrections about how many individuals they have tested. All they keep saying is, oh, no one is tested positive in our prisons who are inmates. The numbers that I do know, and I believe this is, is as of yesterday, April 2nd, there are two people who have been tested in Broward County Jail that did test positive. 
again, I don't know how many people have been tested overall and how many negatives there are, but there are at least uh, two people who have tested positive in Broward County Jail. I, th I think the main concern here is the transparency with the Florida Department of Corrections, with the local jails, is we really need transparency in terms of how many tests have they conducted? Do they even have the ability to do the test, I think is another question. Um, how many tests do they have? What is the waiting period? And unfortunately, there is no collective response from sheriffs. It's all scattered throughout Florida. And there's probably some updates on the Florida Department of Corrections website, but I don't think it gives us the full picture of how many people have been tested. Are they concerned about any? Are there any outstanding tests? And that's the type of information we would need to know to really get an idea of how bad it is in the jails and the prisons. I think anyone who knows the basic social distancing rules that have been pushed and knows anything about jails can understand how those two things cannot exist in the same world. You know, you're not supposed to gather in groups of 10 or more. That is impossible in the ways that the jails and the prisons are set up. You're not supposed to be within six feet of other people. That obviously can't be done in jails and prisons where people are sleeping, eating, working, hanging out, being in the same place together. It's just not possible in jails and prisons. And that's the main concern. And on that note, uh, you know, as you know, Florida has nearly double the amount of people in its jails uh, held pretrial. And it also has an incarceration rate outpacing uh, the U.S. as a whole. So what would you and your group's recommendations be in terms of actions that would hopefully limit the spread inside correctional facilities? We are extremely concerned about the number of people who are being held in custody pre-trial, presumed innocent. They've been convicted of nothing, and yet they are sitting in custody in these jails, and they have a higher risk now of contracting COVID-19, because once it gets in the jails, it is going to spread. So we have, with other groups, made asks of sheriffs and of state attorneys. For example, we think state attorneys should agree to release on people's own recognizance individuals who are sitting in custody simply because they cannot afford their bail. And there are people all across this state who are sitting in on $100 bails, $1,000 bails. They're not sitting in custody because they're a danger to the community or because they've been convicted of anything, but simply because they are unable to afford their freedom. So we are asking state attorneys to agree with defense counsel to release these individuals on their own recognizance if they cannot afford their bail, if they are not a danger to the community or a flight risk, meaning they will show up to trial. I think uh, courts and some courts are doing this. I believe courts need to work to make sure bail hearings are heard as soon as possible within 24 hours and that anyone asking to be released from custody who is not found to be a danger to the community can be released even if it's not on their own recognizance but it needs to be an affordable bail amount and you are correct we are very concerned with the number of people who are sitting in custody pre-trial anyone can go on the florida department of corrections website and look up the statistics of how many people in our county jails are there pre-trial. And some of the numbers are stunning. For example, in Palm Beach County, in the main jail, the Florida Department of Corrections in uh, January of 2020 found that 66.9% of the individuals in there are pre-trial. And then in Palm Beach County, again, in the West County Jail, 80% of the people sitting in there are pre-trial. And the numbers, you know, as bad as those numbers are, there are places within the state that are even worse. In Broward, Florida Department of Corrections found, and again, this is in January, and we don't have any updated numbers since, but it was 91% almost. We're sitting there pre-trial. And I think it's really important for the state attorneys, the judges, uh, defense counsel, and sheriffs to all work together to release individuals who are there pre-trial if they are not a danger to the community, they need to be released on their own recognizance. If there must be a monetary condition, it must be an affordable bail amount. Um, and Broward County is the Fort Lauderdale area. As you probably are aware, South Florida has the worst number of COVID-19 cases. 
I believe Miami is the worst, Broward is next, and then Palm Beach County. So the concern in South Florida is even greater. So the fact 90% of the people sitting in the county jail in Broward County are pre-trial is horrifying because these are individuals who should be quarantining at home like the rest of us, not sitting in a jail where people are living, eating, sleeping, working together in such close proximity, unable to social distance and quarantine like we can. Wow, those those numbers are are staggering. And on top of the people who are inside these facilities, Florida also has a significant number of people under criminal supervision. And we know from studies that a large percentage of prison admissions nationwide are the result of violations of probation and parole supervision. What are your concerns about that? And have there been calls to uh, to stop sending people back to prison for these violations, which a lot of time are very minor? In our letter that we signed on to with various other organizations, we did ask for the governor and the Florida Department of Corrections to reduce unnecessary parole and probation meetings. So there are a number of individuals who are on probation or parole who have been you know, viewed as low risk and they should not be required to spend the time traveling to and from and waiting in crowded administrative buildings for these brief meetings with their parole or probation officers. I think anyone who is on supervision that no longer needs it um, to check in in person, they should be allowed to just check in via phone call, especially now that we are under a stay-at-home order by the governor. There's no reason to have people unnecessarily leaving their homes. We also ask that the governor and the Florida Department of Corrections eliminate parole and probation revocations for technical violations. So for example, in 2016, uh, 60,000 people went back to state prison, not because they were convicted of a new criminal offense, but because of a technical violation. Technical means something like they broke curfew or they failed a drug test. It, It was not a violation because of a new crime that they committed. So in an effort to lessen the prison population and to make sure more people are not coming in to the state's jails and prisons, the states and the sheriffs should stop locking people up for behaviors that are simple technical violations. That number's staggering. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. And that's from 2016. I wish I had a, a more updated number for you. Jack- Jackie, this is the last question from me um, that I have, but obviously, you know, the U.S. is the world's largest prison state um, in terms of uh, incarcerated people on a daily basis. And, um, you know, a lot of advocates nationwide are saying that, you know, this pandemic has sort of brought this to, to light even more, almost amplified this as a reason why the country needs sweeping criminal justice reform measures. So what are some specific policies that you think are ne- necessary uh, to reduce the incarcerated population? You're absolutely right. So some sheriffs have already released individuals in Florida county jails due to the COVID-19 concerns. For instance, Pinellas County, which is the St. Petersburg, Clearwater area, released 200 people. Hillsborough County, which is the Tampa area, released 164 people. Uh, Volusia County in the Daytona area released about 88. And then Lake County, which is a smaller county uh, outside of Orlando a little bit, released 44 people. And so other jurisdictions are also issuing notices to appear instead of arresting people. So these efforts to release individuals who are sitting in custody pre-trial. These are things that criminal justice advocates here at the ACLU and so many other organizations across the country have been advocating for, for a very long time. If there are individuals sitting in custody simply because they cannot afford their freedom, they cannot afford their bail, they should not be in custody. And it, it should not have taken such a horrible pandemic such a global travesty for these courts and these state attorneys and these sheriffs to recognize the need to release individuals who shouldn't be in custody in the first place. So these efforts are commendable. However, they need to be extended beyond the emergency that we live in now. And hopefully by these institutions, the courts and the sheriffs and the state attorneys recognizing that these individuals didn't need to be in custody in the first place during this pandemic. They should not be in custody even after this pandemic is done. And I don't want to over-exaggerate, and I don't think I am, but wouldn't it be true to 
to look at this as almost, you know, so if you can't afford bail, you almost could be looking at a, a life and death situation, right? Because now you're you're in a place that's so confined, you know, obviously the, the, the masks and all these other precautionary equipment have not trickled down into the, into the jails and prisons yet. And you're being sort of forced into a, an environment that is potentially like life and death now, right? I mean, is that, is that taking it too far, do you think, in your expertise? Or do you think that that's, that's an accurate portrayal? I think that's an absolutely accurate portrayal, unfortunately. Because as you said, you know, these are individuals in many cases sitting in on low-level crimes, you know, possibly low-level felonies, low-level misdemeanors or municipal violations. They're not being tried for something that in Florida could get them the death penalty. And yet, simply because they're sitting in custody, they now are at a risk of of losing their lives. And the truth is the numbers in Florida are scary. As we're talking right now, I'm looking at the Florida Health Department's website. The total cases reported are 9,585 in Florida. And of course, we know there are still outstanding tests. So this number is not completely accurate in terms of how many people actually have COVID. It's just the number of confirmed cases. And we've seen how many deaths there are. In Florida, there have been 163 deaths so far, but we know that number is only going to get worse. And those are individuals who were out of jail and had access to go and get care when they needed it. Now, it's only worse for those who are sitting in custody where we don't even know, do the jails have access to the tests? And if they don't, what is it going to take for jails to actually send someone to a hospital or to a medical facility to get tested? And we don't know because these, these counties aren't releasing those details and what their plans are. So it is very scary because the death number is, is going up and every day exponentially. And the number of reported cases across the country went up threefold last week. So we know it's only getting worse. And so people sitting in custody, unfortunately, don't have the luxury of being able to go and get tested as soon as they're feeling those symptoms. They're, they're at the mercy of whoever's custody they're in. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And the last thing for me, and this is something we've been asking every guest who we interviewed about uh, criminal justice amid this pandemic. Can you describe, and I know every correctional facility is different, but can you just sort of uh, describe the conditions in which um, uh, people are living inside these jails and prisons? So can you just give our listeners a sense of what it's like inside these places? In my experience in both county jails in Florida and in prisons, people are living in giant, you know, dormitory type rooms where everyone is sleeping in one big area for the most part. It's not like they have their own bedroom that they can go into. It's not like they have their own bathroom where they can keep their own bathroom clean. They are sharing these mass communal areas. And that includes like the recreational yards. That's big areas for everyone to be in and hang out and sit at tables together. And then same with where they congregate for eating. People eat in close quarters together. It's not like each individual has their own kitchen. If they they are going to classes or services together, they are in big rooms. But again, it's a mass congregation of individuals. It's not like individuals have their own personal dormitory. They have big mass areas where potentially hundreds of people can be in in one area, again, sleeping and eating and working together in close proximity. Wow. I, I just had one last question, so I was just thinking about it. In terms of civil liberties, aren't there statutes or legalities uh, concerning, you know, when someone is in the custody of a state or a facility, that it's expected that they're not going to be put in a potentially life-threatening situation during that time in their in their custody isn't does that apply to, to something like this correct yes prisons have an obligation to take care of the individuals within their care and that includes medical care um, in florida unfortunately we have some horrible instances of the prisons and the jails not taking care of the individuals um, medically for example right now there is a a class action regarding the lack of treatment for individuals who have, um, have hepatitis C. The court has found that the state has totally 
ignored the needs of the individuals who have hepatitis C. And unfortunately, that's not the only example of the state of Florida ignoring the medical needs of those within its custody. Um, well, Jackie, I think we covered everything uh, we needed, unless there's something that you think you want to add that we failed to address. Uh, one final thing I'd like to say, extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. Um, and we all know that. But I do think that the measures we are requesting from the prisons and from the jails are not even that extraordinary and should be carried on beyond this pandemic. Us simply saying these people should not be in custody in the first place simply because they can't afford their freedom. That's true now during this pandemic, but it's true later. So I don't think we are asking for anything beyond what they should be doing anyways. I just want to emphasize that. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much. A big thanks to Jacqueline Aziz for sharing her insights. Now to another important matter. According to the National Resource Center on Children and Families of the Incarcerated, more than 2.8 million children in the United States have an incarcerated parent, and 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives. That's a staggering number. Familial bonds are hugely important, and these connections can have a huge impact on people who are incarcerated. Research shows that people in prison who remain in contact with family members receive less disciplinary actions and have lower recidivism rates. At the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, most correctional facilities in the U.S. banned public visitation to limit the spread of the disease. So how does that make life more difficult for the people behind bars and their children and loved ones? We discuss this with Anne Adelist Estrin of the aforementioned National Resource Center on Children and Families of the Incarcerated. Here's Chris and Rashid. Uh, first thing first, can you state your name for us, title, and affiliation? Anne Adelist Estrin, and I'm the director of the National Resource Center on Children and Families of the Incarcerated at Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey. Great. And can you just uh, describe um, the, the Resource Center, what it does, and how long it's existed for? Yeah. Um, the Resource Center originally was part of the federal government during the Clinton administration. Uh, it was funded during that time to look at what was going on around the country serving kids and families of those incarcerated. It wasn't refunded in the Bush years. I was the director at the end of the Clinton administration years. So we sort of took it and we blended it with another sort of nonprofit NGO and and limped along for many years until 2013 when we were invited to uh, come to Rutgers Camden. Our main goals are to gather and access accurate data to train and also inspire people to do this work and the people who are doing the work to support and promote family strengthening public policy related to this issue. And then finally, to include the families in defining the problem and designing the solutions. We don't do direct service work. So we don't work directly with the families. Our bread and butter is training and technical assistance to state governments, local governments, small programs, um, other countries. So that's really the, the bulk of what we do is training and technical assistance. Just the first thing, can you explain how many children have parents in prisons and whether minority children are disproportionately affected by this? So it's always the first question. It's a, it's a great question with uh, complicated and, and not really, uh, not very satisfying answers. But the number that you'll see most is 2.8 million, uh, which is sort of one in 14 American kids. That's a snapshot number, so on any given day. And I have to say that we have no system in place in this country to count these kids. There's there's no place where it's asked on any forms. And and we really aren't advocating for that in terms of child-serving systems. We really don't want schools to be asking or pediatricians. I can talk about that a little bit later, but it has to do with the stigma that kids feel. So the only system where we do collect the data is the adult system in corrections, but there really are very, very few departments of corrections, state, local, or federal. Although the federal system has begun to collect information when people come in about their kids. So any numbers you see are basically either random samplings that have been done by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the last one having been done in 2008, and then taking those random samplings and doing a formula to project a guesstimate is what we call it. 
so the best guesstimate is, is 2.8 million. If you see 1.8 million, it means that they didn't include jails or municipal facilities. Now we're starting to see like 5 million as a number. And that's because people are expanding the formula to project out not just a snapshot number, but in their lifetime. So in a child's lifetime, a five, about 5 million American kids will experience incarceration. And if you see 10 million, then you, you're, you're looking at someone who is using any form of criminal justice involved, system involvement. So it could be house arrest or probation or parole, not just incarceration. And so, you know, that's the, the dilemma that we have is that everybody wants numbers and there's no system in place to really gather them. We have to do our best guess. In terms of disproportional representation, the, the standard number is that African-American kids are seven times more likely than white kids to have an incarcerated parent. Uh, Latino and Native American kids, two to three times more likely. It's roughly sort of one in seven or one in eight African-American kids in America have an incarcerated parent. I, I, I want to just say, too, that we're very cautious about using the disproportional minority contact information because, you know, in, in the resource center's view, the interpretation of that data can often be done on, with a lot of bias. And so the meaning that gets made of those statistics matters a lot for the stigma that these kids and families face. So we really want to say that racism is alive and well in all of the systems that serve these kids and in every, almost every part of the criminal justice system, that that, that accounts for those numbers more than that you know, a group of people is inherently more, more criminal or, or, or more likely to, to commit a crime. And also it's important to make a distinction between numbers of people who have committed crimes, number of people who are charged and not yet tried and who are incarcerated, um, and, and those who have been convicted rightfully or wrongfully. Is it even possible then to make a broad statement or quantification of, you know, the population of, of children with in, incarcerated parents now compared to the 70s before the tough on crime policies emerged? That's a that good question. You know, we use a statistic, a, a slide that, uh, that someone sent me. I, don't even, I can't even track down the actual uh, source of it, that since the 1990s, which is when we're kind of attributing the big you know, spike in mass incarceration. Incarcerated mothers, the numbers have increased 100% and fathers 75%. Wow. So, so just in terms of, you know, the, let's talk about the visitation. How important are personal visits for both the parent and the family members um, who are incarcerated and, you know, their loved ones on the outside? How important is this? So the only really helpful research we have is on the parent side. And there is some good research that says that people who are incarcerated, who receive visits from children and families, particularly families, the research on just children is pretty sparse, but who get support and visits from their families have fewer disciplinary actions while they're inside. And there is some indication that it lowers recidivism rates. So we have that. We know that from countless anecdotal evidence of correctional staff that people who receive support and visits from their families just do better. There's not a lot of good research on the kids' side. And some of the research that is out there is actually shooting us in the foot, if, if you will, because some of the researchers use as a, as a gauge, as a paradigm, whether or not visiting a prison is traumatizing for kids. And given that we're working pretty significantly and steadily on the notion that having an incarcerated parent is traumatic for kids. You know, when researchers say that it, it either further traumatizes them or re-traumatizes them to visit their parents, that's actually the antithesis of what we believe. So some of the research that is out there is, is difficult. And, and I'll, I'll explain that because when a child visits a parent any, in prison, they're going to have a reaction and the stronger the bond and attachment to that parent, likely the stronger the negative reaction after the visit. So like the Monday morning meltdown in school, which is very similar to kids who live in divorced households and go back and forth, or it's incredibly similar to kids whose parents are deployed in the military. But 
most of the time, no one would say that, that the divorce court should not give kids joint custody or give families joint custody because the kids have a reaction to going back and forth. And they would never say that a parent should never come home on leave when they're deployed because the kid's sad for a week. And yet that is an argument that's used uh, against visiting for kids with incarcerated parents. So we really want to clarify some of the research about it to say, let's look at the, if it is very traumatic for kids, let's look at which is more traumatic, the separation or the visit, and or how does this trauma compare to the trauma of those other kids I mentioned with other separations? And we, we haven't seen that comparative research yet. So having said that, we don't have any empirical feet to stand on about really what visits do for kids, except, again, years and years of anecdotal information and small sampling studies that do indicate that kids have lessened anxiety when they actually get to see their parent. And I, I think to complete that answer and to, to finish talking about that, I need to jump to sort of what happens to kids when parents are incarcerated? What is the impact? What's the effect? And I, I think we've, we've struggled with that for many decades, understanding that it was traumatic, understanding that, that these kids have, in some ways, reactions like all kids to, to loss and, and to sadness and to separation with some additional toxic stress. And I think the, the biggest bonanza for us in the field has been the last decade of research in the, in the pediatrics field around toxic stress and trauma and brain development. And because of that, what we were able to really understand better now is that anytime a child perceives a situation as life-threatening or dangerous, they are very likely to experience a flooding of stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, that in large amounts over long periods of time create brain architecture changes which affect behavior. And so now we understand that so many of these kids perceive that loss of the parent, that sudden absence of that parent, um, as extremely dangerous, as extremely life-threatening. And honestly, that that sort of flies in the face of conventional wisdom or the people on the street, so to speak, who think that these parents were actually dangerous for their kids. The, the idea that the kids are better off without their parents, the idea that they need to be separated from their parents for their own well-being, is what drove and guided a lot of practice and policy for the first few decades of my work. And now we can actually look back and say, for the most part, these kids had healthy attachments to their parents. Not all. There are kids who did not have healthy attachments for whom these parents might be um, more or less supportive, helpful, or even toxic. But for the vast majority of the kids we've talked to and interviewed focus groups, um, all kinds of interviews with kids, their relationships with their incarcerated parents have, have been really significantly strong and attached in many variations. Some of them would never see their parent except summers. Some would see them every day. Some would see them just a few weekends a year. But no matter what that structure looked like, kids had themselves perceived a strong attachment and therefore the loss of that parent was threatening. And what we also know from this brain development research is the antidote to the stress hormones is dopamine or the hormone that floods the brain that's the well-being hormone. We get it from lots of things related to satisfaction. Children primarily get dopamine surges from their significant attachment figures. So if you watch kids and you see them fall down and they're young or, or they're adolescents and they get in trouble, the person, well, adolescents might first feel traumatized by their parents, but then they're going to feel comforted when the parent doesn't kick them out of the house or when the parent is there to help them. And, and help them through something. And so for many, many, many of these kids, that loss of the parent creates a trauma, increases toxic stress, and takes away the buffer from that stress, which would be the parent. So visiting is really the only way that kids can touch figuratively or literally their, their buffers, their protective or resiliency factors in the face of trauma and risk.
though. We have, we have to really um, get busy when all of this is over on trying to find researchers who can put that into um, more empirical language that people will begin to listen to. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think that that's absolutely incredible. I mean, the fact that there's actual, you know, physiological evidence now of the benefits of these visits, I think uh, it could be, I don't want to say game changing, but at least help emphasize the, the importance of this. I think the first step was to, to get people to look at, this research has been going on for a couple of decades now in the, in the field of pediatrics. I worked for Boston University Medical School training pediatricians for a long time. And, um, you know, so we were paying attention to this research, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And it was hard to get people to include children whose parents were involved in the criminal justice system in that group of kids that we were talking about that were negatively impacted by the, what they're now calling the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, because I think, as I said before, people were assuming that these kids were kind of exempt from that. No, they're, they're not going to be traumatized by a loss of a parent because that parent wasn't really good for them. So the first step was getting people to include those kids, our kids, into that research. And now the next step is, is, to, um, is to help get that out there in ways that it can get um, utilized in policy and practice. Next, I was wondering if we could, if we could talk a little bit about some of the pre-existing barriers uh, that keep children separated you know, from their families. You know, just in terms of example, you know, some, some parents are put in prisons that are maybe hundreds of miles away from their children. You know, how does that impact visitation? You know, everything from expensive phone calls or transportation to potential lodging. So let me say that in my work with families in, you know, interviews and, and focus groups and doing research on visiting, the number one barrier to visiting is actually the family dynamics or the family perspective, which includes, you know, who is the child's caregiver? What's the relationship between the child's caregiver and the incarcerated parent? Keeping in mind that of that, whatever the number is, of that, you know, 2.8 or 5 million or 10 million kids, close to 92% of them are children of incarcerated fathers. And most of those children live with their mothers. And most of those mothers are no longer with those fathers. And so when you look at sort of the bulk of these kids, they're living with mom. They may or may not still be connected to their fathers through their mom. They may be connected through, you know, dad's parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, or mom is totally okay with it as long as you can find your own way to get there. So I think the very first hurdle that kids have is, is working through the, the sort of family dynamics that are operating in all of our families around everything related to who, who you're connected to in the family, um, only the stakes are really high here because it may mean that you, you can or can't visit. And many times kids have said, even when their caregiver, be it mom or grandmom um, or Auntie Jane, even when they agree to allow for a visit, sometimes they really are, are doing it with a lot of resentment. And then the child feels the loyalty conflict between wanting to see their parent and some guilt around that. And so many kids will say, eventually I just stopped saying I wanted to go because grandma or mom or dad or Uncle Harry were really not liking it very much and I didn't want to upset them. So that to me is, is a place where we've been working a lot with resources and materials for caregivers to help them understand the importance not only of the visits, but also of, you know, sort of managing their own anger and their own upset feelings, which are often very understandable um, to help the child through. So that's the first category. The second one is, as you mentioned, the distance and sentencing issues. So where there are, are sentenced, meaning how far away, transportation. Yes, sometimes they're 100, 200, 300 miles away, but it's also problematic for families. I do a lot of work in the state of Maryland, and in Maryland, some of the incarcerated parents are incarcerated only 20 miles away, but there's no public transportation, and the family doesn't really have a car, or they have one car that somebody uses during the times 
that visiting is allowed. And so transportation in all of its forms is really, really an obstacle in general. And then I would say the third obstacle is how difficult it is to actually visit in a prison. Those variations are huge because it depends if, if it's a local facility and it's plexiglass visits, non-contact versus some state facilities where you actually can you know, buy food in the vending machine and sit at a picnic table and eat with your parent and everything in between. We are seeing the federal government offer some guidelines in the last two years for correctional facilities on making the facilities more child-friendly. And uh, we have a couple of really good examples of that happening now. And so when we start to see that, it will make it a little less difficult and strained um, to go on those visits. And, and so then, and if you think about those three categories, if the visit itself is really cumbersome, long waits, and often you drive a long way and you get there and then there's a lockdown and you can't get in, or you get in and there's a delay getting your loved one into the visiting room and so the visit that's supposed to be an hour is only 20 minutes. If those sorts of things happen, and children are fussy or angry or not liking it very well, or you took them away from their video game or their basketball game, and it's really far away and costly, and grandma or mom are not so happy about it anyway, we end up with families just discontinuing these visits. So we really have a long way to go to make this, this work better, but I think we're on the right path. Uh, and then since we're, you know, we are in, um, in this pandemic, there are bans across the country on visitation, um, and you and you spoke to the the lengthy the number of barriers that may prevent people from visiting anyway. But you know, just from your expertise, how do you see this impacting um, both the family members and the person who's incarcerated? So, first of all, I think for all of us, we're all worried, anxious, unsure. This changes day to day, minute to minute. Just when you think you understand what you're supposed to do or what's going to happen, it changes. And that's all true for, for families impacted by incarceration as well. The sort of balm for us is finding ways to connect with people that we love when we have to be isolated. And that's the main difference. Two, two things, two parts of that. One is that you're starting to hear rumbles about this, but the people who are incarcerated are living in a Petri dish for this virus. In the state of New York, I know that there's large efforts to get people released who are over 65, near the end of their, their term, their, near their sentence. And, and I, I believe that it's working. At least my understanding from my colleagues is that in some ways we're getting some people out, but that's not happening in many places. So the additional worry and fear that the families feel is like the rest of us on steroids because they can't just pick up the phone and call grandma and say, okay, you're right. You didn't go out today, right? They can't, the kids can't say, can we call dad and make sure he's okay? Do we know if anybody in his, his prison has tested positive? You know, so, so there's an increase in the anxiety that the kids are feeling for sure at any age you know, even the youngest kids are now understanding what this virus means. And right away, they want to know, you know, can mommy get it in prison? Can daddy get it? And the increase in their anxiety is, is, is palpable. When children have an increased anxiety level, they become more behaviorally challenging. And so now they're stuck with caregivers who are already stressed by this virus, like all of us who are already tearing their hair out with their kids, like, like most people, trying to find ways to enjoy it, to have fun, to make it easy for their kids. But the caregivers are stressed too. So the, their behavioral challenges, because they're extra worried about the parent they can't see or contact, may make them more challenging. And the caregivers are going to be even more stressed. And then, and then finally, I think that I worry a lot because the few things that I've seen come across my inbox around guidelines for COVID-19 for families impacted by incarceration have all been child welfare generated, and they've all been sort of focused on this notion that 
this notion that I don't agree with, and I need to say that loud, that these are kids that are at risk for abuse and neglect, a higher risk than other kids. So the guidelines are watch out for abuse and neglect of these kids because of COVID-19. When I, I really want to say these are just kids that are, for the most part, going to be very worried, very stressed, tax their caregivers' ability to cope. And then the, the final element is most of the families impacted by incarceration lived in poverty anyway. But many of them, their caregivers are working, working poor, working middle class even, with two jobs, three jobs. And so now finances are going to be hard and difficult for all of us and probably, you know, exponentially more difficult for those people that had less. So sort of all of the difficulties that the rest of the world is experiencing is going to be magnified for these families. And the buffer for it, which might be finding out that mom or dad is okay, checking in with them, and lowering the level of anxiety is now not available. With the exception of those facilities that have video visits, they're the lucky ones. We were, we were yelling for 10 years, please don't do away with in-person visits. Video visits are nice, but in-person visits are better. And now we're wishing that we had said, do video visits and in-person visits. We, really important to have those video visits there. They're the lucky ones. And, and uh, you just touched on the alternatives. I just wanted to see if there's anything else that you think uh, jails and prisons can do to increase you know, digital visitation or loosen restrictions on phone calls in terms of just uh, how much money that costs. And then if you could, after that, just explain uh, to people what the Adoption and Safe Families Act is, because I find that to be you know, interesting and a lot of people might not uh, know about that. Okay, so let me do the, the, the first question first, that um, I, I think we're, we're starting to see a few, a few things happen. Several facilities are allowing some free phone calls. You know, phone calls to incarcerated parents are costly, and there's been a lot of litigation and issue around reducing those fees. So we're glad to see that, that some facilities are, are doing that. Some facilities are, have begun before the pandemic to allow people inside to buy tablets that can be preloaded, certain websites they can go on for educational purposes and also preloaded for email and, and, and in some cases, video visits. It's rare, but we're starting to see that. So for those people that that was already in place, that, you know, to, to, to ramp that up possibly to, to get that going. You know, other than that, just sending out information to caregivers if in any way that that can happen to let the children know how their parents are, um, encouraging incarcerated parents and giving them the means to do that, whether it's, I don't know, stamped, pre-stamped envelopes with, you know, that they could write their notes on or, or something. But children need to understand that their parents are okay. Anything that anybody can do to increase the contact. And let me just say that if you start, if, if facilities and organizations rally to make some of this happen, they have to be sure that the information is given out to the families because in one state they were doing free phone calls, so many within a week, but they couldn't get through. And what they weren't told was that every time you try to make the call, even if you don't reach the loved one, that counts. So they were using up their free phone calls without ever talking to anyone. So getting out information about the rules, the regulations and all of that, as well as coming up with new plans. The Adoption and Safe Families Act was developed in 1997 to get kids out of foster care. Uh, it was developed at a time when most states stopped paying foster parents when a child was adopted. So therefore, it was in the state's best interest and, and in sometimes the kids' best interest to get them into permanent homes, to get them adopted. And back then, it was primarily kids who were removed from families because of abuse and neglect. With mass incarceration and the large numbers of people who are incarcerated and locked up, kids are at risk for having their, their parents' rights terminated so that they can be adopted, even when the parent who's incarcerated was not abusive, not neglectful, and is getting out in a reasonable amount of time and could easily resume parenting. So we're starting to see states change those rules, um, in part because most states are still paying people now. That, that changed dramatically. So 
even if you adopt a child, you still get a payment. So they're not saving themselves any money by terminating the rights and getting the kids adopted. So that part's no longer, you know, a reason. And in the best interest of the child needs to be really evaluated. If this parent, just because they're incarcerated, does not mean they're not a good parent. And if there's no child-related crime and no abuse or neglect in the history of this family, and they can stay in a placement with a relative until the parent gets out, we're, we're starting to see states like California and New York make some really good changes to that. That's great. And uh, thank you so much. And uh, in the couple minutes we have left, is there anything that you wanted to get across that uh, you know, we may have neglected to ask you um, in terms of just how this, is gonna imp- this particular crisis will impact people? Uh, you sort of gave sweeping answers, but, uh, but I want to put it out there. Well, I think that, that you know, these are kids that are going to be extra stressed and that many of their resources are going to be taken away. We're all hearing about how many of these kids, um, kids living in poverty were eating at school. So food is going to be less available. Many of the kids had resources like behavioral health resources or mentors or support groups at their church that they can't go to now. Um, and so, you know, I, I really think we need to think about these kids be careful not to frame this as a child welfare issue, that these are kids that are at risk for abuse and neglect any more than any other kids, but they are at risk for being really anxious and really sad and really stressed out. So any organizations that are out there that are serving kids and families, um, they'd be great to, to look up and see if you can volunteer to do anything from home, see if you can um, donate. We have a list of programs on our website all over the country that might be near people who are listening to this and that they could find a way to get involved with a very important issue. Uh, that's great. Uh, thank you, Ansel. Uh, we'll let you go. Um, thank you so much. All right. Well, that'll do it for this special episode. Again, subscribe to Newsbeat on your favorite audio or podcast app to stay informed about these critical issues and for more coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, which is disproportionately impacting marginalized communities. As with everyone, the virus has upended daily life, and for some, the consequences have been tragic. We're going to continue to deliver the news because it's important, perhaps now more than ever, to highlight injustices and expose them. A big thank you to our parent company, Inbound Marketing, Sales Enablement, and Client Retention HubSpot partner agency, Maury Creative Studios, who makes what we do possible. Once again, my name is Manny Faces, and thank you to the Newsbeat and Mori Creative Studios teams for helping us put these episodes out. We'll be back very soon. Please stay healthy and safe, everybody. One love. Peace.